Here we are in the midst of the great feast of Easter. You notice the candle continues to burn for these 50 days. In the good old days, uh, your, your Paschal candle was uh, not extinguished in the 50 days. Um, now there's fire codes and insurance and all that, so we, we, you know, we do what we can. But uh, it's great to have you back. Life's good. Um, let's pray. Lord God Almighty, who every year renews the face of the earth, and whose will it is to renew this fallen world from sin and death. Grant to us, we beg you, that we may discern in your Son the dawning of true life, and in him share in this new creation who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. Now, one of the things you've noticed, um, one of the helpful things about having vicars and interns and folks around is they don't uh, think exactly like you think. You hear this very pregnant uh, sentence, um, he, in him dawns true life, and in him we share a new creation. And so you who've been in Bible studies with him have heard him talk regularly about uh, incorporation into the body of Christ, which is uh, a thick theme in the church, but not always uh, given full play among Lutherans. And then when you hear a prayer like that, part of what's being prayed is for just such a thing. Um, there is a way that we can parcel things up too much so we get our forgiveness separated from the good works that we ought to be doing. Um, and sometimes we can get a muddled the other direction too. But if you begin to listen for different ways to say the same gospel, you will benefit by that and your life will be a richer thing. So uh, that's very nice. Now, um, tend the announcement, I, I know that in the terms of, of um, what's happening in this congregation, there was, it's always fascinating to be the pastor. The, the past few weeks, all I've heard is, um, when, some, when is something going to happen, you know? And then we put the announcement in this morning, and then the answer is, well, how did everything happen all at once? <laughs> you sort of want to say, uh, uh, you know. Uh, so the way it happened all at once is, People worked really, really hard, very, very efficiently. They put in a lot of hours. I mean, there were a lot of people here till you know, 9, 10, 11 o'clock, a lot of nights. And um, things just happened. So I announced this partly under the way of the law, which is the Constitution says we need to, but always uh, mostly under the way of the gospel. Pay attention to next week. Okay, I just wanna, it has to be announced by Constitution, but I just wanna tell you this, pay attention to next week and note that we were in such a, uh, such a rush to get things into the bulletin. The announcements, we had the announcements written for the voters meeting next week. At, so next, let me say it clearly. Next week at 10:15 a.m., there's gonna be a special voters meeting here. If the work is not done, there'll be a special voters meeting the following week as well. So there, I got all due diligence out of the way. At these special voters meetings, you may only do the things that are on the agenda. The problem is we had so many people meeting this week, we must have had four different agendas set up, and I noticed that the announcement in the matin service, 9 a.m., doesn't match what's in the other three services. The other three services have a more complete announcement, although I did it verbally, so we should, you know, it should all be in good shape. Here's all the things that are happening next week, so this is why you need to come. Uh, Val Gugliami and Sue Domeyer have asked for peaceful releases to carry on 
with other vocations. Sue is principal at St. Luke Atasca, and Val will stay home with her new child. Um, that's great stuff. Then we will uh, rejoice in service of um, Liz Skinner and Bob Waterman here as they move toward retirement. That then opens uh, the next bit to be talking about. I'm not sure this will be the order, but I'm just telling you that this op that opens the next bit, which is um, the call committee for principal has recommended a name, Jack Pallas, who is a principal in Chaska, Minnesota. And that name will come uh, as a recommendation of the committee uh, for a call to be our principal. And finally then, uh, the principal call committee is, uh, I'm sorry, the pastoral call committee is recommending the call of Josh Gainig and Marcus Nelson as pastors here. Now you will say to me, don't you know they're vicars? I will say, yes, I've observed that. <laughs> you, know, you will say, isn't there a problem with the timing? I will say to you, well, it takes time to get anybody, and that without putting too much out there, um, Josh uh, can be back by Christmas, or really by Thanksgiving, and Marcus then would be available in the next spring. Um, and in some ways, kind of layering people in is a bit of a better way to do that. Those things can all be explained. Uh, you know, then you'll say to me, as some people have said, why didn't you tell us they were available? And the answer is, you shouldn't have presumed that they weren't. No, that's not a good answer. Uh, <laughs> the answer is, because uh, I didn't want to skew the process. So people said to me, there, there were people who came to me and said, I would have put their names in if I knew we could call a vicar. And I also heard rumblings in the congregation of people saying, well, you can't call them, they're not vicars. I didn't weigh in on either side because I didn't want to skew the process. Um, Real honestly, a lot of people figured it out on their own. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that, and that was, that was fine, and there wasn't any reason for me to weigh in. I'm weighing in now. You all need to show up next week, and if we don't get done, um, then you need to follow up the next week. We will not rush what we have to do next week. On the other hand, I can just tell you, you know, a couple of call committees have done an awful lot of work over the past month or two, however long it's been. So there you go. Um, that's my pitch for it. You all should show up next week. Any questions? I don't want to get, here's the thing I don't want to do. Before I take your questions, I will take them. But I also don't want to usurp the place of the call committee chairs who will explain everything in great detail to you next week. If there are general, real, you know, if you have a question that's giving you hives, you know, go ahead. I'll try to do what I can. But I also don't want to get in the way of this. So questions. You did. Go ahead. That's a non-hiving question from Karen. Yes. Um, no proxy voting, right? No. By, our Constitution does not allow. It actually, our Constitution specifies, I think, that there's not proxy voting for anything. We always have that question, and, um, uh, and it's a good question because, you know, real live people have real live jobs, and they move around, and things happen. So yes, you've got to be in place to vote. Everybody OK? So there'll be more to come. Then beyond that, um, I can just tell you that uh, there have been hours and hours, days and days. You could, we, we could not afford the kind of work that we're getting out of the real estate committee. I mean, we just could not afford to pay people. I mean, if you tallied up their time, honestly, it would be, it would, it would be not in the tens of thousands. We would be at the $100,000 kind of mark already, the kind of work that people are putting in hour after hour, especially daytime meetings where people, 
leave their jobs at noon and come to the Bible church at one and don't leave until 3.30. I mean, it's a remarkable thing that people are doing. They're not only leaving their own jobs, you know, and not being, you know, compensated for that. They're giving us what they're giving us for free. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I will tell you, um, at some point we need to have a vote on Wheaton Bible Church, either the 18th or 25th of June, and the other one needs to be the budget meeting. Normally we don't push those things so deep because we know that people start to leave for vacations, we get all that. The problem is, is because of the Bible Church, we got a bit of a late start, so our 120 days didn't start until they lived up to their end, and that pushed it then out to June. So, and we wanted to make you know, very good use of that. Obviously we started, people started working really hard. I actually shouldn't say we, because I must say, those people are doing all the work, those are REC people. I mean, they obviously started, but there was no sense to start the clock tick until it had to click, because you know, 120 days might be a long time in a regular real estate transaction. For a church, you know, with a lot of volunteers doing things for free as they're able, it's not very long at all. Um, so people are, wor they're just working like dogs. There are so many people in this congregation in all different directions working so hard, and that's precisely how it should be. It's precisely how it should be. There are probably, between the hecto people, you know, how many people worked on that? How many people worked on the pastoral call committee? How many people worked on the principal call committee? How many people worked on the 50th anniversary celebrations? How many people are working on the REC? How many people are on the governing board? How many elders you got? You got people working like crazy all over this place, which is exactly the way it should be. And we've actually come to the point where people are coming and saying, hey, can I play? And we don't have enough time right now to get people assigned. If, if you've said, can I play, and nobody's called you, it's not because we don't like you. It's because things are moving so quickly, we can't get people assigned to the right spots. So please be patient with us. You know, the best thing is, is when everybody's involved. Somebody said a brilliant thing to me the other day about, you know, there's always this big church, small church thing, which I've opined to you about. Somebody said the other day, the busier you are here, the smaller this church gets. And I thought, that is brilliant. That is exactly it. The busier you are, the smaller this church gets. Because you start to have contact with loads of really, really fine people, and you realize how many people are pulling on the same end of the rope. Yeah, they're bright, yeah, they're driven, yeah, they don't always agree, yeah, they've got their own opinions. We sat in one meeting last week where, you know, only about four of the 12 people followed the directions. And, uh, <laughs> It was fascinating, I know, to, to which one response was, all leaders and no followers here tonight. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things about St. John. You're all leaders, you know. Uh, um, from Trinity Roselle once, uh, somebody said to me, uh, the difference between us and you is you have all the generals and we have all the sergeants, uh, <laughs> which I then have later found out to be, frankly, somewhat true. Uh, but, but the generals are nice to be around, you know. They, they know where the officers club is and have good taste. And, uh, <laughs> you know, are willing to strategize and, you know, so it's, it's all good. So there's just a ton going on. You need to pay attention between now and July 1. You've got to pay attention because things are going at warp speed in terms of a church. Pay attention. A lot going on, okay? Questions about anything else? I don't want to be the guy that gets, away and get, gets in front of committee chairs. They need to do their work, but I also, occasionally people will pop into my office and say, why don't you say something? It would be so comforting, and the answer is... It's a fine line, but if you need to be comforted, I'll say whatever I need to say. Okay? <laughs> this is all right. I mean, we just, we're all trying to get to know each other. Just, we, you know, it's a new, new, new day, new ground. Everybody okay? Questions about anything? Next week, this time, you've got to be here, please. All right.
get a Bible open. Uh, you know, we're going to have a regular Bible study schedule going forward. Um, I'm just going to keep swinging at First Peter right into the summer and just keep going. Whenever I get a chance, uh, you know, I'm going to take a run at it. So does anybody need uh, a syllabus? And Mark, will you look on the bottom? Are those things about, and can you divide those? And remember last week, you know, some of you were asking about the consecrated remains and all that. And actually, Vicar, have you given this to Joy Group? Did you give this to Joy Group? You might want to give that to them because they were curious about that. So you can have what's left over. Um, if anybody wants this thing on the Holy Supper, there are people asking about. Uh, you want to do that for me? If anybody wants the Holy Supper, when that's that's the vicar, and then. Um, All right, everybody good? This yeah, April second is back. Yeah, I'm right at April second in my Bible study. There you so much for efficiency. Okay. Okay, here we go. Um, so it's First Peter 2. Um, you know, I just, I'll say this just as we finish up. I've never, I've been in a lot of churches. Um, I've never been in a church uh, where there are so many high-powered people who are able to work together so well. And you, you should just know that. I mean, I've, I've been in a lot of churches. Most churches don't work very well. Sometimes when churches work well, they work well because they have a few people who do everything and sort of occasionally might enforce their will in the way of, say, oh, I don't know, Tony Soprano. But then, um, you know, it's very rare to have a congregation where so many people have so many ideas and are so accomplished and can actually work together and be respectful of each other. You should nurture that and cherish that in the days ahead. I guess what I'm saying to you in, in, a, in a backhanded way is to give your leaders um, the benefit of the doubt. The, your lay leaders who have sort of stood up and worked hard, I mean, they're, they're beyond the point where they're just doing a good job. They're doing things that are frankly unbelievable. And when things like, you know, call committees work this way or real estate committee will come and show you all the stuff that they've done, I think you'll be actually astounded. Um, and I've actually missed the last two meetings because I've had other meetings competing and stuff just dribbles out to me and I can't believe this kind of stuff they're doing. I can't believe uh, the detail with which things are happening. Let me just say one more thing and Martha help me out on this. This Saturday is the Cargill stuff, right? Coming up. Saturday coming up and that's the whole congregation, yeah? So you should be, here's another thing for you to do. Um, on Saturday I have a track meet for my kids, a wedding, a seminar I'm supposed to give, the Cargill thing, and uh, my mother's coming and my daughter's in a play, and I think it's all at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning. So, <laughs> you know, uh, so try to, try, you know, try to, I know you're busy too, uh, try to pay attention to what's happening though. Work it from memory, try to pay attention, especially to the Cargill thing. Uh, you need to come and hear what people said, so then we know how to go forward. Okay, everybody okay? First Peter, here we go. Um, 2, 11 to 17. I just want to just read this little bit here and then sort of run through this. Beloved, I beg you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Maintain good, contact, sorry, maintain good conduct among the Gentiles so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good dudes. See your good dudes. All right, this is great, man. See all the good dudes from St. John. They can see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme 
or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's a fascinating, that's a fascinating little bit there. We need to get to that. That your right action puts to silence people. At some day, truth wins out. Yes, you just stick by that. Live as free men, yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil. But live as servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You can hear that as the law or the gospel. Okay, now I'm just going to go to the top of the sheet and come um, the proverbial Hades or high water. I'm going to finish the sheet today. You know, if the next service starts at 1220, then so be it. All right. We're going to finish this sheet. All right, here we go. Beloved, which all that means, which is you are those who are loved into living as those who are loved. This selfless sort of love permeates you as a divine gift and not only leaves you as object, I'm loved, but also um, prompts you, motivates you, moves you to live as those who are loved. And you remember then, uh, we went through a bit of the code word last week that always gets read at, Chris, read at Christmas, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's own people. What a striking way to speak about exiles in the midst of God's creation. You, you need to put those two things together, that you are at once aliens and exiles, and also God's own people. That tells you what creation is all about. It means that his own creation is alienated from him and needs to be reconciled and frankly, he means to use you to do it. Just, just know who you are and what you're meant for. I urge you, exhort you, comfort, admonish you. And then uh, I didn't check the Greek with Burkles, but I know he'll support me as a summer intern, that that word can also mean I comfort you, which is a very gospel way to say it. Sometimes the fourth meaning of a word is the one that gets it most right uh, theologically. Um, the, the, the New Testament department always says, uh, we tell you what it says, and then the theology department says, yes, and we tell you what it means. So uh, what it says is, uh, you know, I urge, admonish, exhort. What it means is, I comfort you. It is the paraclete, yes. Same word for that, right? Same word for the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Uh, which it, that, that would have to make this the right answer then, wouldn't it? <laughs> if it's the Holy Spirit given the gift, so that's the name when you put a big, big letter on it. That's the name for the Holy Spirit. It would have to be that. And so you should then be comforted by the fact that this is the word that was used for Abraham. Abraham's in exile, stranger in a strange world. It's joyous stuff, right? And so you're set apart, and then I sort of ask you, you're sort of joyfully restricted. There are things you would not do. There are things you would not say. There are places you would not go. And even though you might have gone there once, you wouldn't go now because your life is joyfully restricted. I couldn't be caught living like a, living like a normal human being. I'm different, exile, alien. Drop your kid off at high school. Tell them to remember who they are. They are the baptized. And no matter what's going on in that school, they are different. And their differentness will win out, which is one of the problems if we as parents give up on our kids at the high school years and just sort of say, well, you know, everybody rebels against everything in high school so they can sort of do what they want. No. 
I mean, I'm, no, it does happen, of course. I'm aware that it happens. The point is, though, the Lord doesn't give up. He still intends to use those kids, which is why you have to pay attention to them. Okay? So I sort of put it to you. Can you wear the tag joyfully? And then four, abstain from passions of the flesh. And partly what, you know, what that means is flee temptation. It means you should have a visceral reaction to evil around you. You don't stay next to it. You don't entertain it the way we entertain ideas. It's a fascinating way we talk about how we think we entertain ideas. Sit down, have some coffee. Would you like sugar with that? You see, you know, we entertain ideas. The point is, do not entertain it. Flee. It's like, uh, uh, it's like when I'm watching Dumb and Dumber last night to prepare for this Bible study, and they're looking out the window <laughs> at the guy with the gun. Yeah, and they're like, oh, so they go out the window. I only watch just a little bit. <laughs> Other things on. Colby was lighting it up from way outside, so I had to get between two things. Anyway, um, flee that. You know, move away from that. Have a visceral reaction to it. And honest to God, if it happens in the church, knock it down. Okay? Because we're going to get to the point at the end of this where he talks about truth winning out. Where when things don't look right, you measure things up by truth. You heard then, um, last week, that you don't live then according to your own self. Your own self can't be trusted. At the bottom of the page, I give you Jesus Christ himself, Matthew 15, out of the heart proceeds, you're wrecked. You're ruined. So if you make judgments based on how you feel or how you think, um, it is, uh, 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 it's dead, maybe before I was, uh, before I was, watching Dumb and Dumber. This is how my dad, I think about my day, what a strange thing. I was drinking a 16-year-old scotch and reading Umberto Eco's The History of Beauty. So see, I balance in my life. Uh, and it was, it was fascinating. He tries to define what beauty is, and he begins by saying, beauty is that in which, that beauty is that which creates desire in us. And immediately you know that's wrong. Why do you know that? Because then pornography is beauty, for example. It creates desire in us. So that can't possibly be the standard of beauty. Then he has a bit where he says, beauty is that which, is, which we find admirable, but not necessarily uh, that which we wish to imitate. For example, someone who um, you know, uh, jumps into the sea to save their child but then drowns. We find that admirable, but it doesn't create desire in us. But you see, that can't be true either. Um, uh, there are some things we'd admire, but um, certainly we wouldn't want to do. Uh, there are all sorts of people in the world who admire suicide bombers. That doesn't make them beautiful or good. Right? So the question for you is, what's beautiful? What's good? The answer is, there is an external standard revealed in the person of Christ who lives out the ten words as gift and blessing as the royal capital R, priest capital P and then draws you all into his royal priesthoods. And so you turn the page then. Why do we flee this? And we went through this last week. Because it ruins you as a person, and it ruins the assembly collectively as a church. If you engage evil, if you don't flee it, and when you can't flee it anymore, if you don't fight it, you will destroy yourself, and you will destroy all those around you particularly in the church. Evil is like, you ever watch the Discovery Channel where those whales are swimming by and then all those things are kind of sucking on it and you think to yourself, I wonder if they'll do that whale in. Or the New York, New York Times on the front page a couple of weeks ago had this brilliant little thing on um, 
elephantitis, and I can't remember the, you know what elephantitis is, right? This disease of the lymph system. You get a parasite, which is very easily avoided, but in much of the world is not avoided. So you, you have these people whose, you know, legs, you know, get this big roundabout. You say, you know, this is, that, that's, the, that's what evil does to you. It doesn't kill you, at least not quickly, at least not usually. It swells you, or it depletes you, or it, it, you know, it takes control, or you, know, you become a drone. That's why we talk about being possessed by evil. It possesses you. That's why we talk about demon possession. It actually takes charge of you and uses you. And it can take charge of a church and use a church. And that was my long speech last week about how churches don't collapse, but they can be destroyed. Churches don't collapse because the church is the external word and sacrament delivered. That's the gospel, Augsburg Confession. That's what we confess. Office of the ministry. What's the office of the ministry? It doesn't talk about pastors first. It talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit in word and sacrament. You know, churches don't collapse, but they can be destroyed when people turn their backs on the external standard of truth, on Christ, on his word, and on his sacraments. And when, when you do that, even when you're a non-sacramental church, you've already given place to evil. You've already given place to weakness. You're already living at less than full blast. You're already in a place where you're in danger. And the amazing thing is, and you know this about churches, you don't just take yourself down, you take down the whole congregation with you. Which is why evil, why you flee evil, and then when you must, you fight evil. And it's not an option for Christians to abide evil or to engage in evil. Now, the interesting thing about that is you keep going, and I'm almost to five. I, I sort of thought to myself about Matthew 18, where we often talk about we're trying to save a sinner we can reconcile to a brother. And that's right, the face-to-faceness. But the other reason, if you read 1 Corinthians 5, the reason such people are called out eventually, even so far as excommunication, is that it destroys the body. You not only destroy yourself, it destroys the whole thing. Uh, and finally, this is number five, it ruins your witness in the world. You have all been places, you've all heard about churches where you would never want to go, right? I'm just taking a wild guess here, but you've heard that there are churches somewhere in the world that sometimes have problems. You've heard this? Maybe you don't run the same circles. I've heard this occasionally, even about other Lutheran churches, that they might be troubled occasionally. Uh, or they might be crabby. Or they, people might be unfriendly. Or the pastor might be strident. Uh, or the people fight all the time. Okay? Now what does that do? It not only ruins the people who are in the place individually, and it not only ruins them collectively as a congregation, they no longer can do what Peter talks about, maintain your good contact among the Gentiles, people who don't know about Jesus, so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That means no matter if people would say something about you that would be bad, your public external conduct is such that people actually see lies. It's a fascinating thing. One of the best ways to run against gossip and to run against those who would lie and to run against those who will not meet face to face, one of the best 
ways to run against that is to refuse to be the lie. And what happens then is that creates a cognitive dissonance in people who said, but you said he was a whore. But then when I met him, my experience, and I would just suggest to you that one of the, one of the things in a congregation that would go a very long way is if you all judged based on your own experience with people and how you were cared for and how you were treated and not based on what people say. Because that's the way of scripture. What the text is telling you here is not to base your opinions or your actions on what you've heard, but rather what you've seen. Because cowards can say anything they want. The way of a liar is the way of a coward. That's why Matthew 18 goes, go to the person first, then if you need to, take a couple of people, pastor, elders, and then the congregation. Almost everybody I know in every church I've ever been doesn't go one, two, three, they go three, two, one. First the congregation, and then when enough hell has been raised, it gets to the elders. And then when it gets back to the elders, they finally call the person in. Absolutely backwards and destructive. So the way that scripture speaks is, you conduct yourself in such a way that you are not an offense, but rather an entry point for the Gentiles, for those who don't know, and that you uh, make a lie the liars. That's how scripture talks. This is partly why, and I'm just going to give you one more thing before verse 5. Uh, you remember that the, old, that the catechism, you remember, says that you're meant to start your day with murder. The first act of a Christian every day is murder. You wake up, and in your devotions, says the catechism, you slay your old Adam. You take him to the font, and you hold his head under until um, he can't breathe anymore. Now, Luther did say, well, he's a good swimmer. Uh, he'll be back tomorrow. And that, that, in fact, is true. But your first act is to drown your old Adam. Now, here's the problem. You, with your Matthew 15 ruined hearts, and I, of whom Jesus says, out of the heart proceeds. So we've got all this junk in us. And then what we're supposed to do in the morning is slay all the junk. And the only way to do that is to have an honest devotion with the Ten Commandments right there, by which we examine ourselves. And we also know, you know, that, that eight in ten people, when they read that, will say, I am a horrible person. I should not have said that. I should not have done that. Forgive me. But as our confessions say, the law not only makes publicans, people who repent, but also Pharisees. You know, on these standards, I'm better than 97% of the people in this congregation. In fact, I'm better than all of you. Uh, and see, you see how this works? which is why then people need to have a confessor. Um, now, in, in evangelical uh, nomenclature, uh, we get accountability partners. I think I've said to you that people have observed to me that evangelicals are impoverished in every way. Um, they have <clears throat> not uh, the supper but a remembrance, and not a baptism but a dedication, and not confession and absolution but accountability partners, and not icons but embroidered toaster covers. That came from one of you, cynics. <clears throat> so, just the toaster cover a bit. I can't take credit for something that clever. <laughs> uh, couldn't possibly have an icon, but you could put God is love on a toaster cover and set that up and, you know, have that remind you of the gospel. Doesn't quite draw you in in the same way, but nevertheless. Okay, so, um, I know it's brutal sometimes, isn't it? But the church, the church. Uh, 
Yes, yes, right. So one of the reasons you, you need a confessor, a father confessor is, frankly, you're not very good at killing the old Adam, nor am I. So the church is impoverished by the fact that we don't have private confession more often than we do, because we're frankly not very good, if we do it at all. I mean, first is just getting people to do it, to examine themselves on a daily basis the way the catechism says. Everybody who gets confirmed today and everybody who comes as a new member stands up and says, are you going to live it just the way it says in the small catechism? Everybody says, yes, I am, and then they never do it again. So one is just getting people to do it, and then second is getting people to do it well. You know, so just do it, and then you do it alone, and then you do it with somebody else, and of course now you're spiraling back into gosh, who am I going to talk to and who am I going to trust? And are they going to sell me out? And are they going to tell people my secrets? And can I really believe that this is forgiven? And all of that stuff? Well, that's what it means to be the body of Christ. I mean, one of the problems with us is we actually don't know what it means to be the body of Christ. We know what it is to gather. We know what it is to have a parking lot. We know what it is to turn the lights on. But in general, congregations, churches, do not know what it is to live collectively in love as the beloved, which is where he started. Why? Because we've never been taught it and we've never practiced it. And frankly, it's really hard and, you know, you have to say things to people. And then after you said them, then you've got to forgive them and then you've got to go on and live as if it never happened. This is horribly difficult. Let's just turn off the lights. Let's turn the key. Well, this will never, you know. Partly what you're trying to decide in the next couple of weeks is if you really want to be church or not. That's really the decision that's being made here. The decision is, are we really going to be church? Are we going to live as royal priests? Are we going to live for each other? Are we going to live in self-awareness and self-critique? Are we willing to have the critique of others? Are we willing to do that honestly rather than for a cause? On the far end of that, are we willing to forgive? And once forgiven, are we willing to go forward together? That's the church. And there isn't any other church. You either are the church or you're not. And that's what he's talking about here. Look at verse 12. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of the visitation. What, and I talked to you about the Russians and the people in Cheetah last week. And then at the top of page, the next page, under five, you know, what I'm talking about is how your deeds, and I've already been through this, you know, your deeds and their words don't match. And seeing the mismatch is actually the missionary power of truth. If you all can put, you put behind you, as scripture says, the sin that clings so closely, and if you can love each other in the way that forgives, and goes face to face when something's wrong and is brave only to the point that's needed and beyond that is loving. Right? You know, you won't be able to buy it. That building next door won't be big enough. This is what people want deep down in their souls. They want to be loved, forgiven. They don't want to be left alone. They want to belong. They want to be safe. They want to be cared for. They want to be important. They want to live for what they were created to be. They want to live in community with each other, commandments four through 10, and they want to live in community with the Holy Trinity, commandments one through three. That's what people want. 
And if you live in this way, it is a natural attraction to people. The church grows automatically. Yes, it grows in other ways too, but it grows automatically if you're willing to tend that. So, um, then just the balance. In 13 to 16, 17, all you do, Paul simply repeats himself, I'm sorry, Peter simply repeats himself for the broader world, okay? So this is how it is when you live in community, and at the next hierarchy, this is how it is when you live within a nation or within an empire. Um, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, under six, I give you some observations about that. One is the Lord loves order. For your children who don't clean their room, you might remind them that Genesis 1 says the world was tohu, wabohu, formless and void, much like your child's room. And when the Lord got a look at that, the very first thing the Lord did was put things in order. He picked up everybody's socks and said, there, that is how, that is best. It actually is best that your shoes are together and aligned and your shirts are hung and the springs over here. And, the, and you might as well go light colors to dark colors. And, okay, maybe I'm, but it was something like that. Okay, that's what the Lord did. The Lord loves systematic theology. That's what he loves. Everything else is just, you know, warm up for that. You need the Greek, but only until, you, you need the shirts, but you've got to have them before you can organize them. But by God, organize them when you get them. That's what happened. So the Lord loves order. That's the first thing you've got to know. And the second thing is, the gospel can't be preached well when there's chaos. I mean, democracy uh, may be overrated in this sense, that we think of it as the only possible way to live. Uh, from time to time, I would like to try the benevolent dictator. Uh, you know, I would, I, would, yeah, I would like to put myself in the care of one who knows all and is all-powerful. Oh, wait, our father, let me think about this. Okay, so... Uh, but at least at the political level. So Luther, you know, was always, there, were, there was always the knock on Luther that he didn't go far enough. And part of the reason, one of the things that held him back was that the gospel isn't preached well in the midst of chaos. You know, when bullets are flying and the tear gas is out, and you're saying, take eat the body of Christ, nobody's paying attention as they run by. Now, I mean, it's just the reality of the situation, right? I'll give you another thing, more personal. When you stop caring for your stuff, and your title, and your position in life, this will all be a lot easier. I'm fascinated, and I will speak only to the high school of which I know, at the caste system at Wheaton Warrenville South High School. I'm fascinated by this, and I've checked it with other parents ahead of me who nod along. That there are groups of kids that are, even as they come in, sort of in groups, and the groups don't mix. You don't even say hi to people or invite people to a dance. You're in your, everybody finds their position according to you know, whose parents are whom and how much money they have and if they had brothers and sisters. It's a fascinating thing to observe. This is utter nonsense. On the other side of that, I had one lunch this week where I, I said, uh, it was a very happy lunch uh, with a leader in this congregation. Um, and I said, you know, one of the interesting things about this congregation over the decade I've been here now, nine years, is um, the people who have grown up with me at my age. One of the things I've observed in them, well, it's been fascinating, because I've kind of been 40 to 50 with you, right? So that's kind of where I'll be 48 in October, so I've been nine years, so I've been 39 to 40, but kind of, kind of 40 to 50s, I'll just speak for them. One of the fascinating things I've watched happen in the 40s to 50s in this congregation is, and I'm talking about, I'm talking about people who, let me just preface this by saying, people who have taken the whole 
the whole, the, whole, the whole gig seriously. People who have been in Bible study every week, people who come to church, people who attend the supper, people who confess, people who tithe. I'm talking about people who say their prayers and raise their kids to say their prayers, people who are interested in acts of witness and acts of mercy. What I've observed in a large segment in my age group, a fascinating thing, which is how they have lost interest in stuff and status. It has been striking to watch you. There's been a whole group of people who have just sort of said, you know what, that's not important. You know what, I've realized, I mean, I just, I can say this to you because you're just interesting people. There are a lot of you who have made a lot of money, and what you've learned is that money doesn't make you happy. It's great to have, and it can be used well, and it's a neutral thing, and it should be used for the glory of God. One of the really interesting things I've also watched in you, one of the really interesting things I've watched happen is people get money, and then figure out it's not that big a deal. That is a huge part of Christian maturity. Another thing I've watched is people get status and have exactly the same reaction. That they've realized at some point that simply to climb isn't satisfying. Now, to have money and bring it to the service of God, that's brilliant. You know, I read last night in my, I was reading my alumni news, um, the shortstop on my... <laughs> I can remember thro making a throw from shortstop. This is my, my one image of this guy, Tommy. I can see Tommy, uh, I can see ground ball hit to my left at shortstop, and me throwing it, Tommy was a big guy, and he's like this, and the ball, I, it must have, I probably missed it eight feet over his head. He had a parked car in the parking lot, and my, my image of him is him going like this. <laughs> Didn't even move, it was, so he just goes like this, and then he looks over at me, he goes, sheesh. <laughs> I mean, I read last night that he's, he's um, co-president of Global Securities for Goldman Sachs and co-president of Goldman Sachs Japan. And I'm thinking, and he named his daughter Lane, which I'm, that's the thing I'm most peeved about. I'm calling him today. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, Tom, you know, Tommy needs to figure out that, uh, well, he's giving you something to talk about. The interesting thing about you guys is that many of you have learned that money and status are not the same as a fulfilled life. Now the next step for you is to do exactly what Peter talks about, which is you need to sort of help people who are still clamoring for money and status to understand that when they get there, it's going to be a little bit empty unless all of that is drawn into the service of Christ. Creation is a great thing. Ordered creation is a wonderful thing. Ordered creation used well is what creation was meant for. That's what you were meant for. That's what stuff was meant for. Until you get that, you'll never really understand it. When you do that, the world is a different sort of place. I'm only at seven. I can sort of summarize this in a little bit. I really can't keep you. But one of the things you need to figure out then, and this is always a, a tough thing for Christians, is to figure out um, when you can rebel against authority. Okay. Was it really okay that Bonhoeffer knew that people were going to blow Hitler up? Was the church complicit because the church did not act sooner or uh, they didn't react more strongly to all that was happening? For example, you know, what are we doing as church uh, in Darfur? What should we be doing in Iraq and Iran? You know, what should we be doing in Chicago? What should we be doing about the whole debate with immigrants and their place uh, especially as the Cardinal of Chicago stands up and says, 
these are our folks. Can you say that? You know, these are, these are all very real questions. Um, the answer, the biblical answer is, you stay with authority so long as it's authority. You live under authority and order so long as you are able to live under authority and order. When <coughs> leaders become despots or killers, um, then you have to rethink the entire deal. I remember seeing Bishop Festo, who was, when I was an undergraduate still at Stanford, I remember Bishop Festo came. He was the bishop of Uganda. And this was a time when bodies regularly surfaced in the lake. And there were rumors, which later turned out to be true, that Idi Amin was dining on his, on his enemies. Um, if you're a bishop in, in Uganda at that time, uh, you got a big bullseye on your head. And I remember this brilliant lecture. It's funny how things stay with you. Um, where he talked about being salt of the earth, and how uh, salt is used up in silence. Brilliant, it was brilliant stuff. And so there is that, but there is also the welfare of your neighbor. And so it's not particularly easy to sort out what Christians ought to do in any particular thing, uh, in, in any particular circumstance, and beyond that, it is possible for Christians to disagree. But they need to disagree thoughtfully and in truth. And they better be able to say why they do what they do. Part of being a Christian is a thoughtful engagement, not only with yourself, not only with your congregation, not only with those who don't know Christ, but also with the society in which you live. Whether you've got the, dem dem whether you've got the benevolent despot or whether you have democracy. And it is up to you to make those choices and people can disagree. That's why you never hear pastors here telling you for whom to vote or which policy to endure. However, there will become a time, and there are times, when evil becomes so potent and it no longer is a matter of strategy but becomes a matter of principle that then pastors must speak at those times. But you do that carefully and you do that with the collective wisdom of those who have sort of risen to help. Um, there are evils which need, need to be opposed, but one, uh, to sort out you know, regular politics is as difficult as sorting out, sorting out church politics. So uh, going forward, and you always ask, is this pleasing to Christ and does it give a truthful witness to him on earth? So I didn't make it, but um, you know, next time. All right, here's the thing. Uh, Y'all need to be here next week for the voters meeting. Um, they need to be here the next week for a voters meeting. Take this as the official announcement of those two things. And there's a lot on the plates coming up. Please pay attention. Please, 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 there's lots to do. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. Pay attention.